Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Seesaw. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Seesaw. Hi, everybody. And this is the first edition of the Third Fridays podcast in 2024. Uh, we are in new digs. It's not quite a kill room because there are windows uh, for all our listeners that were uh, very loyal back in 2015 when we started this thing, or 2016 really. Uh, but we have all new equipment. So if you guys can't hear anything as crisp as we're hearing it right now, I'm going to be really sad because this is some of the coolest equipment we've ever had uh, in the podcast. And uh, makes us a little bit more professional considering all of you guys keep tuning in every single month. Thank you so much. Uh, we're so excited about 2024 and what it's going to bring to us. Um, unfortunately, when we recorded last month's podcast, we didn't have this groundbreaking decision from the appellate division. And now that we wanted to start off the year right, I think it's okay to look back a month and uh, talk about a really uh, big case involving all different sorts of actors and entities because that's what we do here, right? It's a 201 level uh, podcast to really give you guys the real uh, behind the scenes, fly on the wall type of experience because uh, this type of stuff really is intense for a niche industry when you look at it. So uh, to kick us off, I'm going to welcome back a guest uh, that has been on the podcast five times before. Do you remember that, Tim? Five times. Five times? Yeah, you've been on the podcast five times. Your last appearance uh, was in 2022, and it was to really give knowledge to our listeners about defending World Trade Center Article 8A claims, which we know uh, you're an expert in. So it's been almost two years since you've been on the podcast, but welcome back, uh, my my partner, Timothy Kane. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we have this case, and the appellate division came out with it uh, December 14th, right? So um, we're about a month old, and it involves, like I said, a lot of actors and a lot of entities, right? And so I think before we get into the specifics, could you give our listeners maybe the basics behind a leasing agreement between two companies, right? Like a PEO, what is that? And maybe like the backdrop that forms the basis of the controversy here. Sure. So um, we, st- we, we got pulled into this case and our insured got pulled in in 2019. So it's a solid five years of, uh, of work on this case. So I, yeah, I do have some knowledge of what's going on. Yeah, here. just a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, so with a, a client leasing agreement, um, you know, uh, any employer um, can um, contract with a PEO company, a professional employer organization to handle certain aspects of generally speaking, their, their HR type um, uh, needs. Uh, and one of those things is um, providing workers comp insurance, could also be payroll, um, could be health insurance, it can be a lot of different things. And uh, because the employer is in the business of doing whatever they do, 
Um, and they, you know, they get a little outside help on the administrative stuff with a company that's dedicated to doing those kinds of things to make sure their employees are covered uh, with insurance, make sure their employees get paid, make sure their employees are, um, you know, U.S. citizens or, or authorized to work in the United States, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it makes life a little easier, ideally, um, uh, to work with a PEO um, if that's what a company wants to do. Um, the PEO will then go out and get insurance from a, a workers' comp insurance carrier, along with those other insurances that they, you know, might be have contracted to uh, procure, and um, and then often enough, um, there might also be a, a TPA involved. So when you have one of these cases, there's there's generally a, a few different parties that you have to um, know how they relate to each other. Um, TPA, third party administrator, you know, could handle the case um, on behalf of the the uh, PEO as well as the carrier. Um, and then you've got the insured as well that you're, you know, when you have a comp case, you want to make sure you're <laughs> aware of who's who. It's it's kind of, it's a lot. Um, well, because those cases, right, when you go into the hearings, there's so many seats in the room, right? There's so many people that are there. Uh, I feel like anytime we're part of those hearings, we definitely want to be like, who are you here for, right? And you, you kind of go through that, like just early questioning to make sure that all the, the people in the room are who they say they are. Yeah, you want to know who you're there for, of course. And also when you're doing your fact investigation, right, you speak to basically in a PEO case, every claimant or every employee of this company um, has two employers in effect. There's the client company, the company that does whatever. In this case, it was a, a driving, a transportation company, uh, could be a law firm, could be anything. And then their other co-employer is the PEO company. Um, and then again, the comp carrier, as well as potentially a TPA. And then when you go to court, um, you know, there might be a different carrier, different employer involved, and they may have a, a PEO, which again is the case here. So they have all those same types of parties. So yeah, it's important to know who you're there for um, and to do your fact investigation and know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, so you have like, uh, you know, I guess a requirement, right? Every, every employer in the state has to procure workers' compensation coverage for its employees. And a company might say, you know what, it, it's just easier for me to kind of farm this out to a different organization. They do all that work. They get the coverage. And so for some businesses, that offloading can be very valuable, right? Right. So in our case here, and I say our case, meaning the case that, that we're talking about here, we have, you know, a company called Buffalo Transportation. You talked about it as a, you know, a driving transportation company, right? They enter into a PEO with Southeast Personal Leasing, who then gets coverage with State National Insurance Company. I think it's Southeast Personnel. Personnel. Yeah. Personnel Leasing. leasing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Buffalo Transportation has a, um, uh, their PEO company is SPLI, um, and they have um, um, a workers' compensation policy through that relationship. Um, and then, you know, our client um, was called uh, A1 Transportation and um, A1 Express, I should say, and they contracted with a PEO called Tryon Solutions. Um, their policy was with... Um, United Wisconsin Insurance Company. So, you know, just like I was, um, and, and SPLI's carrier was state national. So um, there were two different employer entities that were involved and both kind of pointing the finger at each other. But at the same time, uh, both PEO entities were also saying that they had never heard of this person, which was a big part of the, right. whole, the whole thing. This is also the point in the podcast where like someone's listening to it and they're hearing all these entities. And I think to myself, like if we were on, 
like YouTube or had like a video component, we could actually like visualize exactly who these entities are and point arrows and stuff. Right. But essentially Buffalo transportation is with Southeast personnel who then gets state national, mm-hmm. right? Our client are, is none of those parties. Right. Our client is another employer who enters into a PEO with another insurance company. But we are potentially on the risk as an employer because that's the crux of the controversy here. Who does the claimant work for? At least one of the issues to be discussed, right? <laughs> exactly. It's one of the issues. Who did she work for and whether or not either PEO had a comp policy that applied to her? Right. So, we, you know, we're, you talk about how long this case has been uh, litigated. You know, we have an appellate to, Appellate division decision from December of 2013, this claimant files her claim in 2018. So five years ago, she says uh, that her employer is Buffalo Transportation. Now, starting there, this all sounds normal to me because she's probably representing Buffalo Transportation. She probably doesn't even know what a PEO is. Maybe she does, but for all intents and purposes, she goes to work. She probably has Buffalo transportation uniform. She's probably driving a Buffalo transportation vehicle. So this starts the process of saying, this is my employer, right? Right. And that case gets uh, indexed or assembled with Buffalo transportation's PEO's carrier, which is state national who denies the claim because they say, I've never heard of Tara Brown. (laughs) was the claim in this case, right? Yep. And herein lies, like, you know, the situation here, right? Tara Brown's not going to make Buffalo transportation up in her head, right? Right. So if I were to file a workers' compensation claim, if you were, it would be very reasonable for you to think who your employer is based on where you show up for work every day, right? Who who else, right? Like, you're wearing right now a sweatshirt with the name of our employer on it, yep. right? So we all know that there's a very good possibility that Buffalo Transportation is the employer. It's now becoming a legal battle over who's responsible once the employer is decided. And you get to this point where you have a trial and a lot of the things that happen in those trials kick off decisions that are then referred back to because of things that become, you know, what we lawyers like to call law of the case. All right. Right. It's, it's now it's set in stone. And one of those moments happened when lay witness testimony was being taken from Buffalo transportation at trial. The appellate division goes into this a lot where they say the employees from Buffalo transportation somehow were able to testify and conceded that she was not a leased employee. Like when they're on the stand and saying, this person is not a leased employee to my PEO. What's, what's going through your head? Right. So I don't know how deeply you want to go into the details here, but the reason they conceded that she was not a leased employee of their PEO, which of course was their PEO's position as well, Right. They had never received any paperwork uh, signing her up. And so they said, we never heard of her. Um, And that seems to be 
um, substantiated by Buffalo Transportation's witnesses' testimony. Um, but the reason that that the employer said this is because they were trying to point the finger at our insured as the proper employer. Um, you know, and there's there's reasons for that. But uh, um, you know, I think one of the big upshots here of this of this, I mean, we litigate employer employee relationship all the time, and people are often surprised to hear how murky this issue can be. Um, people who aren't familiar with comp and uh, how often that this is a, a hotly contested issue. Um, but when you get to the, you know, the end of the road here, not to, to spoil it or anything, we can obviously go back to any, any point in time that you want. But I, th- you know, one of the, the, the difficult things about this situation for all PEOs is that um, the, for a long time, the burden on the, the employer and the PEO company was, it was very difficult to show that someone should not be covered by one of these PEO policies. So in this case, you have, a, like you said, a, a driver who wears the Buffalo transportation uniform, drives the Buffalo transportation truck, um, gets um, dispatches from Buffalo transportation, drives their customers, all those kinds of things. Um, and basically the, uh, the case law up until recently just said, look, you know, if you're an employer, you have a PEO contract that includes workers' comp coverage. Unless you have, for all intents and purposes, they said, unless you have another policy, so for example, some companies will have a policy for office workers and then you know a separate policy for, in this case, the drivers. So they say, okay, fine. If you have another policy, then they, they cannot be in the PEO policy. But unless you have another policy, if the person works for you, they're covered. That's the end of the story. And that's the, that's the wildest foundation for this case because you're basically saying, you know, before this came out, I mean, obviously the way we're hinting at it to everybody that's listening, like, you know, there's going to be a change basically, right? But what you're saying is the foundation before this case is that for you to exclude coverage for Tara Brown, you have to have a separate policy that if they're not on this list and this policy, you have to show that another policy exists right? And so from the PEO's perspective, right? They don't know Tara Brown from Adam and Eve, right? So it's saying to them, you have to know all the people that the employer that you're contracting with is somehow employing. And it's your burden to prove that they're covered under a different policy. You have to just know that and prove that. Right. Or or again, pursuant to, you know, as the case law evolved here, there was a version of this pursuant to a case called Gaylord where you could attempt to prove that this person wasn't covered by submitting a comprehensive list of every leased employee, that is every employee of the transportation company that had actually signed up with the PEO, a comprehensive list um, that was incorporated or otherwise attached to the relevant workers' compensation policy, which is something that I'm not really even sure how that would work because, you know, you get your policy and then over time you're, you're hiring and terminating people. So it's like, do you have to right. revise the policy like every it, time you hire someone? Like that, that requirement in Gaylord, and yeah, we can go down a rabbit hole like crazy in this one, but yes, in, in Gaylord, they're saying that you can provide a comprehensive list, but that list, if it exists, and if it's created by a PEO or the employer in its contractual relationship with the PEO, presumes that that employer either never hires another employee or every time they hire another employee, they have to get a new list and then attach it to the policy and then create even more paper 
to satisfy this absurd burden of proof that the PEO holds prior to this case. Yeah, it's it seemed pretty absurd, especially in light of the fact that this whole setup, I mean, like it's legal to have a PEO and it seems to be um, a, a way of, of, of setting up your company to make things easier, right? You offload those HR type um, um, duties to a different company. Um, and then that PEO company fairly reasonably says, okay, we'll cover everyone who you tell us works for you. <laughs> you know, they fill out the forms, they sign their name, they provide their ID. You know, we need to know who these people are. Um, otherwise we don't, you know, we don't think we should be responsible. And, and this can, this can definitely lead to some edge cases. And I think you, you, you may have litigated some cases like, you know, somebody gets hired and they fill out the paperwork, but it doesn't get submitted to the PEO. And in that same first day or something, they get hurt. Like that's possible. And so I can see, <laughs> right, how this can can be something that is is worth litigating. But if you're just talking about your standard situation of, okay, you hire someone, you have them fill out new hire paperwork, you send it to us. That's what we need to see. And, uh, you know, why do we have to jump through like extreme additional hoops when, um, you know, when, when, having someone sign up with the PEO isn't, you know, that's not an extreme hoop for the claimant or the, you know, the client employer to have to go through. So why should the PEO have to go through an extreme hoop to provide, to prove that that never happened? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so Gaylord, the Gaylord decision comes out in 2021 and then, uh, there's an application to reopen Tara Brown based on the decision that originally happened. Like, so in Tara Brown, our case that we're talking about now, the PEO was found to be liable, right? Gaylord decision comes out in 2021, and then there's a reopener application to look at Tara Brown in light of the Gaylord decision. Right. If I'm not mistaken, um, SPLI and State National did have a pending appeal at the third department. So this wasn't, you know, this was still, in a sense, um, definitely still pending. Um, but the board went ahead and took another look at it in the meantime. You know, they kind of, uh, I don't know, they um, circumvented the third department, not circumvented, but, uh, you know, I mean, they, they jumped the jumped on it before the third department could rule on SPLI's um, appeal because they saw what had happened um, in Gaylord and uh, maybe um, maybe some of its progeny, I'm not sure. But uh, anyways, it came back to the to the board, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's also an interesting thing, too, because uh, the board has reopener rights under Section 123 to, to basically rehear or reopen issues. And I actually think that that's a very good thing that this administrative agency can do because if there's new evidence that can really provide a greater right than hold, hold true to a wrong that is the law of the case, then that's the right thing to do, right? It's the correct thing to do. So by reopening the case, they then say that state, national, and SPLI, they did prove that this claimant was not a leased employee based on the testimony from Buffalo Transportation saying that they didn't know or that they knew that she was not a leased employee and the representative from State National that testified to the underworkings of the policy to uh, knowledge of what employees were covered and were not, so on and so forth. And the board says, I, I'm going to credit that to do what? Well, to, to show that this PEO was not responsible for this particular claimant's, uh, you know, uh, comp claim. Right. And now Buffalo Transportation 
becomes on the hook, but without a carrier. Right. And that means that the uninsured employers fund is placed on notice. And Buffalo Transportation now appeals to the third department. Right. Where we're still a party as this other PEO carrier relationship client. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I want to go back to, right? Where you were mentioning that Buffalo Transportation testified to this because they were trying to point the finger at our client. But the appellate division said that when the board ruled the claimant to be an employee of Buffalo Transportation, the appellate division said that you didn't appeal that. Mm. Which is, you know, yes, that's correct. But for, you know, two comp attorneys, you know, experienced like ourselves, sometimes you get a win and you could appeal everything that was found against you. But that's a tough, tough look for Buffalo transportation because I don't think it would, I don't think it's unreasonable for them not to appeal if ultimately the liability wasn't theirs in the same underlying decision. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we have to, um, deal with a lot of procedure in our job. And, uh, sometimes you, uh, you know, like you said, if, if you got a, a, a ruling that was mostly favorable and you know, the, the prior ruling was this lady was, um, covered by the state national policy, you know, why would you think, Oh, let's appeal this. I mean, you, you know, um, it's not, it's not s super obvious that that's what they should have done right. at that point in time. Yeah. And so. you know, Buffalo transportation, they're, they're thinking like, okay, we're out of it. Like, this is what we contracted the PEO to do. The PEO has responsibility. But to me, when they're in the trial, they maybe, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a larger step. But if they see state national saying, no, I'm not covering it. If I'm Buffalo Transportation... I have to think of the risk that state national is correct. And what would happen if state national was correct? Then yes, it could go to our client, but it could also go back to them, which would implicate the UEF and then implicate penalties for double compensation for technically not having coverage. Yeah. Which is basically what ended up, ended up happening. So, I mean, right. I mean, it's, you know, hindsight's 2020, of course, but, uh, Certainly, if you find yourself in this type of situation on one of your cases, yeah, it's, it's something you're going to want to advise your client about, and or or should I say, all of your various clients. But to be to be fair, you're, you know, it's not super obvious, right? That was your phrase. It's not super obvious for you to appeal it. I think sometimes maybe in the context of our clients looking at ways to appeal things that are adverse but may not necessarily have an impact now, but could be in the future. That's probably more within the normal wheelhouse of the day-to-day. -day. You know, good example is, right, our firm had a case where uh, the claimant was on permanent total disability. There's no PEOs, right? Permanent total disability. The client gets surveillance of the claimant because the claimant's provider puts a treatment request in for the claimant's daughter to be her home health aide. And so, like, okay, that's weird. Like, what's going on here? Why do you want 
us to basically pay your daughter to be, you know, another actor in this. And so the surveillance reveals the claimant doing all sorts of activities that is not akin to a permanent total disability, gardening, you know, uh, other housework, bending, carrying, lifting, all this stuff, right? So we reopen the case and we say, she's not at permanent total disability. Let's reclassify her. Let's also raise fraud because she's doing things that she told doctors she can never do again. That's why she's permanently totally disabled. We put those arguments before the judge and the judge actually reclassifies her to a partial LWEC, but doesn't find fraud. And so our client is then in this position where, well, we did, we got, we got a win out of this, right? We reclassified the claimant based on all the, the, the creativity that the unit put together, right? That the firm put together for the client. But what we did was we still think that she's a fraud. And so there was a lot of discussion about whether or not to appeal a no fraud finding because we already won on reclass. Right. And you put, if you appeal the one, you put the other one out there into the world. Right. And so we eventually appeal the no fraud finding because we're saying this is a permanent bar. And it did actually put the classification back in, but only because we knew the claimant was going to appeal that, right? If the claimant's permanent totally disabled and then gets reclassified to a partial, the claimant's attorney is always going to appeal that, right? So that was one of our arguments for appealing the no fraud because they said, this issue is going to be out there no matter what, and claimant's going to appeal it. And so we appeal the no fraud finding. Board panel decision comes back and says, the reclassification thing was weird. No, she's still perm total. But she's a fraud, mandatory, <laughs> discretionary, bar for life. So you you gave good advice in that instance. Well, that that I think that's the thing that are in our clients' wheelhouse more often, right? It's not this, it's not as intricate as Tara Brown, where you have Buffalo Transportation reasonably thinking that this case is over. Mm-hmm. Like we don't need to appeal this employer-employee relationship finding, but now they're getting punished for it because they should have. Right. Right. And by the time they receive state nationals appeal on that issue, I mean, they've missed the appeal window because you sure. know, it's basically 30 days have passed. But that's what I'm saying. Like, so they have, they're hearing state nationals arguments in court. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're assuming naively, maybe, maybe not that state nationals doing this to put the liability on us, our client. But the, no one, no one, no one's considering the potential for what happened which is the board and the appellate division now saying Tara Brown is an employee of Buffalo transportation, but not putting responsibility on Buffalo transportation's PEO carrier. Right. I think maybe, maybe Buffalo transportation and their council were thinking along the lines of all the prior case law, because keep in mind, you know, these cases have evolved the PEO case law as well. So, you know, and I think they may have had a somewhat reasonable assumption that, uh, you know, the, the prior case law that, you know, to simplify a little, basically said if, if a company has a PEO policy, the person's covered, you know, they may have looked at that and said, eh, you know, we're good. We don't need to appeal this. Right. Yeah. No, I, that's why it's not super obvious to, to your term, right? Like no. it's not super obvious for that to happen, but now because you're going to get punished with it. It's very possible that if you have an existing PEO case, those could get reopened. Yeah, or if you have one pending, 
Um, I mean, certainly it's going to affect the ones that are actually pending, right? Yeah. Because we're going to use this, other, other firms are going to use this to really maneuver an argument on liability and coverage. Yeah. But, you know, what, what would your takeaway be from this? Because, you know, we represent carriers of PEOs, we represent PEOs, uh, and the clients that procure the PEOs. Yeah. What's the biggest takeaway from Tara Brown? Well, I mean, notwithstanding that there was some interesting uh, procedural aspects of this case, again, there was there were many, many appeals, both board level appeals, right, board, board panel, full board, and third department appeals, you know, multiple instances of all of those. So I hope I didn't get any of the uh, the timeline wrong. It was, like I said, a five-year journey. But um, you're not on trial, Tim. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think everyone's getting the gist here. But um well, so the, the, the upshot of this most recent um, decision, you know, the, the Tara Brown matter um, is, is basically it, it appears that, it, that the, the requirement to, for example, um, incorporate your employee list into your actual workers' comp policy, um, that requirement, quote unquote, requirement, you know, that, that seems to be, have been uh, relaxed quite a bit, right? So now what you've got is a, a list that purports to be the list of all the covered employees. And most importantly, you've got um, credible testimony. It, it certainly helped in this case that you've also got witnesses from Buffalo Transportation saying that she was never um, a, least, a least employee of uh, the PEO's, you know, uh, contract and the PEO's policy. But at any rate, you know, I think that what's good, what's great about this decision is that kind of in line with, you know, what we normally do, you can produce um, a reasonable amount of evidence, right? Okay, here's a list of all the people, for example, all the people who worked for this client company, you know, between this date and that date. Or here's all the people who've worked for this client company that were registered with the PEO for, for all time, you know what I mean? Up to date, whatever version of it you want to produce. Um, and you have a, a witness who testifies as to that list or as to whatever, you know, piece of, uh, of, of evidence you have. Um, but I think the list is probably the best one in addition to, you know, the policy, the PEO contract, all these kinds of things. Um, and you can, you know, um, reasonably prove that this person was never registered with the PEO. Um, I, you know, I don't think this is the end of the story on this, this, uh, line of case law because the, this is not great for the UEF. Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, certainly the UEF is going to have liability in these types of cases where, you know, the foundational burden that you were talking about before kind of absolved them, right? Because it's almost like, is there a policy that exists? Yes. UEF is not implicated. Now, UEF can be implicated just because, uh, or UEF's implication is not dependent on whether or not a policy exists. Right, right. They, they, they can't just come in and just go, oh, well, the person's covered. You know, it doesn't really matter if they, they were signed up or not. If, if you didn't have a different policy for them, then they're covered under the PO policy, you know, and, uh, you know, wipe their hands of it and walk away. Like, and so, you know, the, the, I do think that, uh, um, you know, there's, there's more to come on, on uh, uh, just like with any issue. Right. I mean, like, um, I don't think this is going to be the, 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 uh, final settled law, or at least there's going to be, you know, more challenges and we'll see how well this case holds up. Well, kudos to you, Tim, right? We, you kept your, uh, your employer, 
uh, and PEO involved, right? Because, you know, maybe that, that is part of the takeaway too, right? If Buffalo Transportation was found to be the employer and State National was found to be the liable carrier, right? Like it also would be, it wouldn't be unreasonable for our client to just bow out and wave goodbye, right? But we kept, you know, our hat in the ring because of the potential risk that any adverse decision would then affect us, right? Yeah, in more ways than one. I mean, again, um, Buffalo Transportation was definitely pointing the finger at our insured the whole time, right up until this decision. Um, and so, um, you know, we definitely stuck around to protect our client's interest in that regard um, because our PEO, you know, had a very similar position as um, SPLI, which is that, hey, we, we've never heard of this person. Like, you know, why should we have to cover them? And I think that's fair. But um, but yeah, beyond that, the decision um, definitely has a broader sort of impact on, on all PEOs. And I, I, would, I would think that, that most uh, defense firms uh, and most PEO companies um, would like to be aware of this, this decision and this kind of, uh, you know, progression of the law. Well, you heard it from the expert, Timothy Kane. He says that it's not over. Uh, <laughs> so we can, we can celebrate for now uh, on our side, but uh, more decisions are coming, which, uh, you know, it's not the greatest tease in the world for a future podcast episode, but it's what I got. Um, Tara Brown versus Buffalo Transportation and the Workers' Compensation Board. A big win uh, for Tim Kane, his paralegal Amy Figueroa, and the firm uh, on behalf of A1 Express and their PEO and PEO carrier. Uh, for Timothy Kane, my name is Christian Cison, reminding you to defend from day one.